We'll uh, join together here. We had some change in weather, didn't we? Yeah, nice and cool. First thing yesterday morning, I got up and went for a three-mile walk, and and um, my back is always an issue. And when I had the wind behind me, yeah, it was just cool enough that my back started to tighten up. And yeah, I thought, oh man, I should have had a jacket. <laughs> but you hate to do that. But yeah, that was nice. Then the state fair this week, our guests sitting in the back there, they, uh, they uh, went up to state fair on Friday. They were going to go Saturday, and I told them there will probably be 200,000 people on Saturday because it's going to be nice and cool, and the 4-H shows were on. And they went Friday. There was only 165,000 on Friday, just under that. So <laughs> they got exposed to our state fair and uh, had a good time. And there, this is your last Sunday with us, right, Steve? One more after this? Oh, okay, good. Oh, yeah, you'll be here for the sweet corn feed then next week. Don't make, don't make uh, plans for after church to go eat somewhere because we'll have plenty right here. With the heat and stuff, I was kind of concerned, so I talk, talk, uh, called the gal over by Yoda, and she said, nope, I'll have your sweet corn all bagged up and ready for you to pick up next Saturday. So that was nice. Uh, let's open up the word of prayer. One of the things uh, we've been praying for is, uh, and I think it's important for churches to remember their former pastors and their wives. And um, Cheryl Turba, as we said, was diagnosed with cancer. It's quite, it's quite invasive in the abdominal cavity and in some organs. And she chose to start chemo, so they were going to start chemo, I believe, I believe Friday while she's in the hospital in, at, or in Orlando, and then she'd follow up in Sebring with a cancer clinic when she gets back to Sebring where they live. So she's starting on, a, on a, quite a journey in uh, her life, and we all face that end-of-life journey that um, the Bible talks about, too. So we'll pray for her this morning. Is there anything else here that um, we should be mindful of? Dwayne Swanson, I, at his place, is that Friday, hon? Yeah, Friday. And took him a bunch of groceries. And the poor guy, you know, he can't hardly move and walk with his back. So I did make a contact that we can pray about that he would be able to uh, get in with a surgeon at the Mayo Clinic sooner than what they are giving him any hope for. So we can pray for that, that uh, he'd be able to get in with that contact. Same contact we use for Dwight Turbot and uh, get his back surgery done. So let's open with prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your word and that we can uh, attach our faith uh, to a person in Jesus Christ, the written word of God, as well as the living word of God. And uh, we ask that you bless our time together, bless our study this morning, that it would be found useful in our lives. And we pray, Lord, for Cheryl as she faces uh, uh, this uh, difficult journey. 
We just pray that you continue to give them wisdom. We're thankful their daughter will be with them uh, by tomorrow night and uh, be a, a help to them and uh, be a servant to them, to her folks. And we ask, Father, you'd bless her and them as they go through this uh, time together. And we think of Dwayne Swanson. We just pray, Lord, that you would, uh, uh, you would uh, bring about the way, the path, that he could get into a surgery situation quite soon. And, Father, that uh, he could get relief from the discomfort he has. And we just pray you bless him as this morning as he will uh, be with us online. And, Father, we just thank you for the time you give us together. We thank you, Lord, for the week. We do pray for rain, for the crops. It's uh, very necessary. And we pray that you provide that and provide that soon. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Hebrew, or pardon me, uh, we will be going to Hebrews. Uh, but um, we are in uh, Romans, in chapter 4. And if you remember last week, uh, we were dealing with uh, uh, the fact that um, Paul went back to follow up with uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 concerning salvation, which he had in a concise form in those two verses. And then he went into 63-verse uh, uh, rabbit trail, if you would, concerning God's wrath. And a necessary portion, because he is stressing to the Romans that the reason salvation is brought and reason is by grace is because uh, of the wrath of God. Uh, men, by their nature, uh, when they're born, we're born of the sin nature, which deems us uh, an object of God's wrath. But we are also an object of God's grace and mercy if we simply receive the gift. And we'll see a little bit more of that again today. And then, then from there he went into chapter 3, uh, the last part of chapter 3, 21 and on, concerning, again, the, the matter of salvation. And we looked at three words there, forbearance, uh, uh, propitiation, and just, or the justifier. We're not going to go back over them. We went through them because they're, they're words that are not typically used in our vocabulary. We hear a lot about God's grace, about God's mercy, and we live in a day and age where a lot of churches even churches like us, their emphasis is on the grace of God and God's love. <clears throat> but the reality is, there's no need of a Savior if there's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a necessary element that we have to realize. As sinners, as fallen people, we are outside of uh, uh, God's grace at that time, but it's offered to us free and clear for us to receive John 1.12, and um, uh, that is available to us. So he's, he's went through that process. Now he comes back to chapter 4, and uh, we, we deal again with the matter of Abraham. We, uh, we said the, the last few verses of chapter 3, there are 27 through, uh, I believe it's 31, um, there were some questions that, that John asked. And uh, we didn't go into them in depth because chapter 4 goes into them. So we're in Romans uh, chapter 4, because uh, uh, Paul goes into him in chapter 4. So we're going to see those things answered here in chapter 4. Now there's, there's an interesting, little interesting side uh, thing here, and that is this. Some of you might get uh, in the nick of time, Kevin Bowder's 
uh, what he puts out. I know Dan does because he's shot them up to me, and I get those also. And one of the things that he had uh, in this week's was the matter of a, a credo thing in the Anabaptist movement uh, way back in 1527. And as part of that creed, one of the things that they, that they really uh, stressed was the need for pastors uh, to be learners and to read in the Bible, read books about the Bible, read other sources that would help in their Christian life, because whether they're preaching, teaching, counseling, or whatever, that's a necessary element to have that wisdom and to have that, that available to them in, in a book form. And uh, I thought about that because we're so privileged. Our pastor is a good reader and very expanded in many uh, topics and subjects as well as the Bible, and we can be thankful for that. But it also brought to my thought and process the, the need for us to read and to be in the Word of God and other resources. And we can be thankful for them because they're very readily available to us. And I thought of that this week as I was in Romans chapter 4. And I think we'll just get through chapter 4 and not into chapter 5 today. So, in verses uh, in, in uh, Romans 3, 27-31, Paul mentions two principles of truth that we must understand concerning justification. Because that's the main topic that he deals with in chapter 4, is the issue of justification. And one of those is the fact that justification is by faith and not by observing the law. Verse 28 of chapter 23, of, of chapter 3, he specifies that, that, that justification is by faith and not by law. The two are, are mutually exclusive, really, if you look at verse 28. For we hold what, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So that's one thing. Now, you say, how, how does that apply to us? You know, the Jews were, were caught up in the law. Well, we can do the same thing. We can get caught up and say, well, look at all the service I do. Look at all, everything I do. You know, that type of thing. And forget that we're saved exclusively by faith. That's our justification. Okay, I'm, I'll get ahead of myself. I keep on, so we'll just, we'll just leave it there. So there's no opportunity here for people to boast in their religious accomplishments. And um, the second one is that Jews and Gentiles have equal access to justification. Verse 29 of, of uh, chapter 3. Or is God the God of Jew only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. We should all be saying praise the Lord for that. Because God is the God not only of the Jew, but of the Gentile. And so throughout this portion of Scripture, Paul grounds his writing in a key verse. And that key verse is uh, Genesis 15, 6. And it's uh, rewritten for us in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, For what does the Scripture say? Now, when Paul's talking about the Scripture, what's he talking about? The Old Testament. The Law and the Prophets. That's what he's talking about, is the Old Testament. And he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. And uh, so that's a key verse. And what is the significance of Abraham in our faith? Well, because the Old Testament and the New Testament, he says, are the same. They're the same. 
Everything, you know, I've said this before, the new and the old is concealed. Those people looking forward could not see the church and the, and the, the age of grace. They didn't see that. But the old and the new is revealed. So as the old unfolds, so too does our understanding of the Old Testament unfold. That is very important, and, and this, is a, this is a key part of it, because the matter of salvation in the New Testament was the same in the Old Testament. One is looking forward, one is looking back. Uh, we have complete revealed truth, but you know what? They had complete revealed truth, too. So we're going to break chapter 4 down into four, four sections. And the first thing is, how do we define faith? Somebody give me a, some quick de- definitions of faith. Yes, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Anybody else? Anything on faith? Yes. Believe that God will do what he said he would? Absolutely. Anybody else have a quick thought on faith? Yeah, Dan. Yeah. You know, that brings back to my mind as uh, I was sitting back there on a chair one day in, in class here, and, and Ben Hansen came in behind me, and he walked up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, Grant, I think we should switch chairs out, because the back leg on, my, on the right side of my chair was like this, and I didn't know it. <laughs> I really had faith that chair was going to hold me up. <laughs> I just didn't know it. So, yes. So those are things that we can think about with faith, because Paul introduces Abraham here for two reasons. One is, the Jews revered Abraham. And if Paul's going to convince the Roman church that justification is by uh, faith alone, and the Roman church knew Jewish history, he was going to have to, he was going to, have to, to use uh, some type of a proof text, and that proof text is in the person of Abraham. So that would make sense. Now, the fact that he's dealing with this in other books like in Corinthians and Galatians, he, he really, he really uh, specifies some of the issues that he's facing in those churches. And they were also Gentile churches. Here he doesn't specify that. He goes right into doctrinal issues, but along with that, you can kind of read between the lines that there were some problems there. And one of those problems, more than likely, was Jewish, even Jewish saved people, they, they, uh, they believed in justification by faith, but the Jews were so attached to the law. Now, we can think of that in our lives when we got saved. If we grew up in a religious situation, there was maybe some attachments there that were hard to, to, to leave and break away from. Well, what about that, though? It can't be that simple. What about this? And uh, we can all think of things like that. So the same thing is here. And the issue is to endorse the fact that the gospel of justification by faith alone is, is uh, in and of itself complete. The second one is Abraham is a key figure in God's plan of salvation and that the gospel is in continuity with it. So this goes all the way back. And we think of the Old Testament in uh, chapter 3 and verse 21. Just look at that real quick. Uh, turn back a page, chapter 321. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And we talk about a discontinuity and a continuity that, that uh, Paul was establishing there. Chuck Kirchhoff, uh, one, of his, one of the things he said was that verse there was the hinge, the hinge on which uh, salvation history 
Let me see, I got it written down here. Yeah, the hinge by which salvation history turns, that hinge of justification by grace, and the fact that, that it's been manifested, well, it's manifested not only in the Old Testament and in the law, but it's manifested, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. So though that, that's, a, that's a key thing to, to always remember as we go through here, just like uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I believe are the key to the whole book, the gospel, the good news, the gospel, there, how that salvation hinges uh, is Old Testament to New Testament is, is very important to us. So let's take a look at these things. The first one is faith is completely different from works in verses 3 through 8. And we'll read these first ones, but we're not going to be able to read the whole chapter. What then shall we say it was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and has counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, or some of you might have wicked in your Bibles, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he goes on to re, uh, and puts uh, Psalm 32, uh, verses 1 and 2 in there. And we'll get to that in a, in a minute. So here we see, if the, the, the Bible tells us, if, if just if Abraham is justified by works, then Abraham had a right to boast. And we, we can all think, think, think of things in our life that, uh, you know, we're, we're happy with. It might be, uh, we have some here that have some really uh, historic uh, tractors that are just beautiful, and, and we could say there's a right to boast there, and somebody else might have a right to boast about something else that they have in their life that they really uh, hold dear. And we think of those things, but... Not before God. Because anything we have was provided by God and allowed by God. And especially here, as it's talking about being justified by works. Abraham didn't have anything to boast about. Because God's perspective is no. The Old Testament proof is what we just read in Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So it's a foundational Old Testament verse that... Uh, is held very near and dear and should be by the Jews. Now, in um, Galatians 3, and you might turn there and then mark it because we're going to go back to that. Galatians 3, verses 1 and 2, um, Paul addresses the, the Galatian church here now, a, 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 a Gentile church. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, now by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And he goes on and, and says, having begun with the, with the Spirit, are you going to revert back to the faith? Then go down to verse 5 with me. And it goes on, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So <clears throat> he dealt with that about nine years before Romans was, was written. I'm getting a tickle in my throat. About nine years before Romans was written with the Galatians and the and this same issue. For the promise in the Abrahamic covenant, now what did that deal with? There's some say three, some say four things that the Abrahamic covenant dealt with. What's one? Land? Anybody else? A nation. A nation? Descendants, okay. Promise. And uh, what would be the last one? Anybody? Nations being blessed. So we see four things. Now, promise is a big one because that's what he's dealing with here with Abraham is the promise. And if you remember, either last week or the week before, we talked about from a dispensational standpoint, at least how I view the Bible, with innocence, conscience, which didn't work real well, human government, which didn't work real well. So he comes to promise and does a unilateral covenant with Abraham, not one that's reliant on Abraham doing anything in obedience. It's solely reliant on God. And that's that Abraham is going to be blessed with the land. He's going to be blessed with a nation. He was going to be blessed by those who bless him and uh, cursed by those. They, the people would be blessed by those who bless him and cursed by those who cursed him. And all nations will be blessed, which is a separate issue there. All nations will be blessed. And that's what we're dealing with here in, in Romans, is the fact that all nations are blessed, the Gentiles and the Jews alike. So that was, that, that was something that was known very well by the Jews. But the Jews had a, had a problem. They had, they had attached something to it that wasn't there. So now we see in 7 and 8, David writes in uh, Psalms, about the accounting or crediting. He says, blessed... Now, this was written after his sin with Bathsheba. And he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Is that any of us? Huh? And whose sins are covered. We talked about the covering. We're not going to go back over that. The mercy seat. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count or credit his sin. Now, if you have a loan at the bank and it's a $100,000 loan, and you bring in a payment, they credit that, don't they, to, to reduce the loan. The problem is, if you have to come back and get another loan for something else, now the loan goes back up. Well, it would be the same thing in our lives. If we could work our way to salvation, when we do something good, we could say God will credit it to us. But then when we do something bad, God has to add to that loan, that debt. And you know what? It can never be paid. So what he's dealing with here, and what he's, he's, he's reverting back not only to, uh, to, uh, to Abraham's past and the, and the law, but he's also reverting back to David, who was very high, highly thought of by the Jews, and what David wrote after his sin of Bathsheba. And it's, he's talking here about imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness, look at uh, verse uh, 4 and 5 here. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. Where does that gift go back to? Remember John 1.12? As many as received, it's a gift that God is offering of salvation. 
and believe on his name. I was talking with Tim Scarron after his message here uh, uh, in John. And I said, you know, it's so often in the Bible, it talks about believing in his name. Or believing in the name of Jesus, if you will. Well, there's a reason that the word name is there. And it needs to be examined. And Tim said, oh, you know what? He said, I was thinking about something like that this week. But he said, I've, I've, just, I've, I've just never really parceled that out. And I said, I think that needs to be part of our message when we, when we see things like that, like John 1.12. Because the name of Jesus, what does it mean? Salvation, Redeemer, Protector, Rescuer, Deliverer. All those things are encompassed in the name of Jesus. That is complete. Jesus is the gospel. That's complete in Jesus. So when he talks here about this gift, uh, wages are not accounted as a gift, but as is due. If you're working, you're going to get paid for what you work. But what Jesus has offered here is the gift. The gift of himself. This imputed righteousness is, is granted to him. And then in verse 5 it says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly or the wicked, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then it goes on just as David said. So what, we, what we're viewing here in the opening remarks of this chapter is the fact that there's a righteousness that's imputed to us that is free. And it's from God. It was not what was earned, but rather received, John 1.12. So when God justifies the wicked, he declares him innocent. The heart of the good news, the gospel, is the fact that grace covers our sin. God's grace covers our sin. Something that we can try to duplicate in dealing with our kids and family and stuff, but you can never duplicate it perfectly. You know, we can have times where our kids do something wrong and say, okay, we're going to give you a break this time. There won't be any punishment. That's grace. But if you do it again, justice has to prevail. And you are the, I, the parent is the justifier, if you will, at that point of carrying out that justice. And it's, it's something is due. And we, we, can't, we can't find that in salvation other than through Jesus Christ. The second thing is faith does not depend on any religious ceremony. Verses 9 through 12. And it says, uh, in verse 9, it says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? So he deals here with a topic that he knows the Jews understand and are knowledgeable of. And that is the fact that Abraham, his righteousness was counted to him before he was circumcised. Now, some uh, Jewish histor historians uh, say that that was some 30, maybe even up to 40 years after, um, after the promise was given to, to Abraham that he was circumcised. And I think that's a deliberate thing on God's part because he, he, he absolutely has those two, thing, those two things separated and separated by many years. And I think there's a purpose for that in, uh, in God's planning. So God's pronouncement of Abraham's righteousness, Genesis 15, 6, and then the institution of circumcision, Genesis 17, were years apart. There was nothing about them that was close or synergistic, if you will. So the purpose was, in verse 11, as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. And in verse 12, here we see, 
that the father of all who, ex- who exercise faith and receive the free gift by grace. So let's read verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham did before he was circumcised. So there's two, there's two effects that we have here. Uh, I should have backed up the, the purpose, I believe, uh, in verse um, 11, the purpose, uh, believe without being circumcised, the righteous was, uh, would be counted to them as well. There's two things that Abraham has here. One is, he's the father of all who believe and were not circumcised. Who would that be? Who are the ones that believe and were not circumcised? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. As some Jews would look at the barbarians. They're unclean people. But he is also the father of all who believe and are circumcised, the Jew. And this is very intentional, I think, what we see here, where God is, is putting the Jew and the Gentile in the same package. And you know what? He's dealing here, he's dealing here from a standpoint that, that the Jew and Gentile are equal, and we have the same responsibility here, and we're going to get to that in a minute, so I'm not going to get ahead of myself, hopefully. So what are the implications for us as a church? Well, I think the implications are that we're countercultural. Let's turn back to um, Galatians 3, verses 26. Maybe I'll start in verse 24, Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, what did we say a guardian was? What's another word for that? Tutor. Tutor. Anybody else? Schoolmaster. The guardian was our schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. But here, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by what? By faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're not under that. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized, and I believe that's spirit baptism there, into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs to the promise. So he's making that very clear to the Galatians that you you can say what you want about Abraham and that you're a Gentile and not a Jew, but you know what? You're offsprings of Abraham if you're saved. You're all one. And what I said there is the church needs to be a countercultural place. And it's it's counterculture in this way, that we're an institution established by God and there should be no barriers where it comes to race, background, economic any of these. Because we all have examples of salvation that's based on something other than faith, probably in the back of our life. Now, if, if you haven't, if you grew up in a Christian home, and we're not involved with that, then uh, you'll praise God for that. But here, what we see that is faith is not related to the law in any way. And it says in verse 13 that, that Abraham... That uh, offspring, the Abraham uh, offspring were heirs. Or Abraham was heir of the world. In other words, all the world, not just the Jewish world. So we have the same responsibility here as a, here as a church. Now, 
we, we live in, in places where as a church, you know, you, you just take a look at the people in this room, and you went, if we went down testimony by testimony and found out the background of the people, where they came from, what their family background was, what, what uh, religious affiliation they had as they grew up, you go through that whole process and you'll say, how in the world did any of us come together and get along? And you know what? Outside of Christ, it would be impossible. It would be absolutely impossible for that to take place. And whether it's race, whether it's economics, uh, whether it's nationality, or whatever we want to look at, that should not be an issue in the local church. And the issue of reconciliation, which we're, we're not going to get into uh, very far, I, I kind of wanted to again, but we saw that in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The issue of reconciliation is first vertical with Jesus Christ, but after that, for us, it's horizontal. It's horizontal. And there is no place in a local church for schisms and, and little people parking their own, you know, that's what the Corinthian church was in trouble about concerning the Lord's table. They all had their own little thing that they were doing and excluding everybody else. And we, we can't do that. Because if you do that, then you're outside of the grace of God in that area of your life and at that moment of time. It doesn't mean you're not saved, but you're in disobedience. And Paul is trying to get that across the Roman church here. Jews and Gentiles, you've got to mesh as one. You've got to act as one. Remember the Corinthian church, after all the work Paul put in there, and there's four letters written, and all the time he spent at Corinth, and he finally came to the point, he said, listen, I'm going to be coming to you to, to collect the offering and take that offering to the Jews in Jerusalem who are under such persecution. And he told them, he said, you have a responsibility in this because you're a wealthy church. You have a responsibility to give generously to this. And the example is the Thessalonians who were extremely poor and they gave out of their poverty and now, Corinth, you give out of your wealth. His understanding to that point was, okay, you have come together as one, now you want to act as one when it comes to this issue. And that's the same message that's there for us. So, there should be no barriers uh, when it comes to anything in our church. Everything should be, and if there's a problem, it should be dealt with and taken care of. And reconciliation should take place. And by the way, I said this when we went through Corinthians, if somebody comes to you that has offended you and they come to you and say, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did, you know what? You have a responsibility under God to say, I forgive you. It's not, well, let's wait and see how this goes forward. No. There's a responsibility. Once they come, and that's one of the hardest things, that's one of the hardest things I, I, I learned. I, I'll never forget when Pastor Turbot told me one day, and I won't say what it was about, but he came to me and said, have you apologized to your wife? No. Now, Pastor Turbot's about this tall, you know, and here, you know, is this, at that time, big, powerful guy, now I'm just a big guy. And he gets right, gets right up there and like this and looks up. It kind of reminded me of uh, something on TV with Tim Conway when he was looking up at at, uh, what's his name? Harvey Corman. Harvey Corman. 
and he looked into his nose and said, Oh, what's that loaded? You know, he thought I was a shotgun, you know. And so Pastor Turb is getting right close, and he's looking up, and he says, Have you apologized to your wife? No. And I learned something that day of, a, of, a, of, of responsibility and accountability, and that is if, if, if you've offended somebody or done something you shouldn't have done, you need to apologize, but then they need to forgive. And that's, that's a life lesson that I will never forget. So the third thing here is faith is not related to the law in any way. Chapter, verses 13 through 17. Abraham here in verse 13 is, is accounted, I guess I should get back to Romans, not Galatians. Um, but in Romans here, verse 13 and his offspring. Now when you see offspring, there's three words that can be applied there. Offspring, seed, and nation. And they're all the same thing. And I'm not going to delve into that any further. I was going to, but, but uh, not in this case. And uh, offspring, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So here we have the issue of, of Abraham, the heir of the world, that is for everybody. That's a very expanded thing beyond what the Jews ever thought. So we just saw in verses 11 and 12 that he is the father of all who believe. Now, where's the problem in this? Well, here's the problem. Many Jewish contemporaries taught that Abraham's stature was a result of obedience to the law of Moses. So Paul is dealing here with an issue in the Roman church that it's not the law of Moses it is Abraham, the promise to Abraham, which was unilateral, God only. So here's the issue I see in this. When there's doctrinal problems in our church, they need to be corrected. And if they're not corrected, what happens as they, as they go on forward in, in uh, time? They just breed an expanded problem. And I think we've all seen that in history. You go back to the Reformation, and I've had people say that uh, it would have been a lot better Reformation if they would have separated from the Catholic Church rather than tried to change the Catholic Church and, and kind of stay under its, under its cover, so to speak. It would have been a better Reformation. And I think we see that through history because then the problems come along with it. When I was growing up, the church I was growing up in, I still have the small and the large catechism. And in those catechisms, it's very clear that the issue of baptism is paramount. It not only gives you a position in, in heaven, it gives you a position in that church. You become a member upon baptism. Then it's reconfirmed in confirmation. But if you go through, the, if you go through those, uh, uh, those uh, two uh, catechisms and read them, there's no doubt about it that baptism is a saving grace. Now, when my sister was born, and she had uh, the muscle that was... Uh, not expanding and opening up between her stomach and her intestine. Now, this is, this, my sister's really old. This is way back. <laughs> we tease her that she's my older sister, but I'm actually seven years older than her. But her, the doctor's pronunciation was, we can try to do surgery, but more than likely she's going to die. So it's a real hard, it was a real hard situation for the family. What's the first thing mom and dad did? 
they had the pastor out to the house, and they, you know how uh, as a kid you get these snapshots in time, just, you know, you might forget everything else that was really important, but sometimes it's that one thing you remember. Well, I'll never forget that, standing there as a seven-year-old boy and watching as they baptized my sister to absolutely guarantee her heaven if she were to pass away. Now, we, we know that I believe it's under God's grace, but that's not the way they thought. It was the importance of that infant sprinkling. And it really came to light when we didn't have our children baptized, sprinkled, and my dad is very clear to me. He said, I hope you realize, Grant, that if you don't baptize those children and they die, they're going to hell. Because that was what was believed. Now, where did that come from? Because we look back at the Reformation, we see a lot of good things. But there was little foxes in there, chewing away. And that grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, till it got to a thing where all of a sudden they could talk faith, and you could talk trusting Jesus, but here's what has to be done. And then you have a confirmation, you have the, the Lord's table that, that follow uh, suit. But that's the kind of thing that can grow. Why, why are we careful here in this church to make sure we hold on to these doctrines and pastors, you know, he really does a good job of, of searching the scriptures to make sure that we are accurate in what we believe. Because when the challenges come, we need to stand on what's right according to the word of God, no matter what happens around us. But that hasn't been the history. And that has not been the history uh, of good, fundamental uh, Biblicist, is what I would like to say in fundamental, Biblicist churches, that hasn't always been the history. We can go back and look at, at many of them, same with the schools. You can go back to Moody and you can go back to all these different schools and what's happened. It's because they tripped up on something doctrinally and decided to overlook it. And churches, for instance, that just preach grace and love and grace and love, and it sounds so good, and oh, it's so good to go there because you can just hear these positive messages, and there's never anything about the wrath of God. There's never anything about accountability. There's never anything about those things because those are negatives, and we, we concentrate on the positives. That's what they're doing. They're going to go doctrinally astray. We don't want any part of that. So here, in this case, the law was given some 600 years. Now, there's different... Uh, you know, some say 430 years. I don't know where they come up with that because Abraham was around 2100 B.C. The law was in the 1450, 1445 B.C. To, to, to Moses. But the law was given some 600 years after Abraham. And the unilateral covenant that was with Abraham should have been understood. And the law in verse 15, what does it say in verse 15? For the law brings what? Wrath. Wrath. Why? Because there's no way we can obey the law completely. We're not capable of it. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned and man fell, there's no way we can obey that law completely. So even though the law was one of the greatest blessings that the Jews held on to, Paul is telling them, you know what the law brings? Wrath. Judgment. It has to. And then... Uh, 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 I'm going to read one more thing here, the problem. The Jewish interpreters of the Old Testament restrict Abraham's seed to Israel. 
That was the other thing. Offspring and seed. They restrict seed to Israel. They, rest, they restrict the nations to the physical de- descendants of, of uh, Abraham. So that was part of the problem. When the Jews read that, they didn't believe heir of the world. They didn't believe a blessing to all nations. They viewed that as the Jews and the nations that descended out of the Jews. Now, I don't know how they accounted for Ishmael, because he was Abraham's offspring too. But um, that was the problem that they faced and what Paul was dealing with here. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's law. There's, there's some form of law ever since the Garden of Eden. They're, they're in, in issues of obedience. So it's a whole Old Testament law. But the law of Moses is what the Jews really held on to as their, their, their blessing that was uh, just for them. So let's finish up 18 through 20 and 22 here. We'll just uh, real quick. Faith rests in a promise that flies in the face of what's natural. Faith is distinct from the law. Faith is distinct from the traditions of the law. And uh, when we look at the end of verse, uh, let's look at verse 17 here. It says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What is he talking about there? Jesus can declare um, sinners to be righteous even though they are not by imputing his righteousness. And by the same fact, just as God made Jesus and declared Jesus sin and he punished Jesus on our behalf even though he was not a sinner. God is almighty. He can impute righteousness to the sinner And in this case, on the cross, he imputed sin to his son Jesus, who was perfect, in order that he would pay the penalty for our sin. And I think that's what he's talking about here when he says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence of things that do not exist. Now we know, as we go on there, he also talks about that with the issue of Abraham and Sarah. The fact that Abraham, at 100 years old, and and, uh, Sarah, at 90, and uh, beyond childbearing... And yet, what what did God do? God brought alive both Abraham and Sarah that enabled them to have a baby, and that baby was a gift. It was a special gift that they couldn't bring on their own. So faith has power not in itself, but in the one in whom we place it, verses 19 and 20. Where's your faith placed? Where's my faith placed? It needs to be in God. It's the one, it's the one who has the power of faith. And also, faith is based on God's word. Verse 21, Abraham confronted his and Sarah's physical limitations and believed. Why? Because God said it would happen. Abraham also believed God would, would raise the dead. Hebrews eleven nineteen. When he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, he had complete belief that God would still raise him up in some way and produce the promise of all the nations. So, we, are here, we stand here today as heirs because of God's promise to Abraham and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's a simple act of faith that we need to exercise. 
Next week we'll get into chapter 5. Okay? Thank you.